you're listening to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast, and today we're going to try something a little different. We're going to do some kind of outtakes from season one, uh, some of the stuff that maybe didn't make the program, and then some of the insight from our very valued guests that uh, we're really fortunate and appreciative of the fact you want to come on and share your knowledge. So uh, thanks for listening. Hopefully you enjoy it, and we'll uh, look for more shows in the new season. Welcome to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast, a look behind the scenes of the fly fishing world, featuring insight from guides and gear reps, conversation with resort managers, thoughts on entomology, discussions on fly patterns and destinations, and plenty of fish stories. Most importantly, it's an exploration of this lifelong journey we call fly fishing. Here's your host, Mark Hopley, with this episode of Fly Fishing 97. And it's like, wow, it's seven o'clock straight up. You're good, man. You know what? We try to be nothing if not punctual. <laughs> I, you know you know what's funny? I was just talking to Cheryl Brooks. Don't ask me who Cheryl Brooks is. I must have dialed the wrong number. Anyway, she's doing fine, too. So <laughs> how you doing? Are you uh, good? Yeah, yeah, good, good. So I saved up all my money and I fished. I, I think I fished like 82 days straight or something when I was in Cranbrook <laughs> to learn all the water. This is Brennan Lund, and you're listening to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Well, it goes back to the thing of everything disappears. When I'm on the water, um, especially on the water, everything that I know or have problems with, my demons, everything disappears, and I, I kind of become one with the water and, and, and the rod and the line, and it, I'm just very in tune with it. And the same thing goes with the bites. Everything just disappears, so... It kind of resets my brain with those thoughts, and I'm good to go. Definitely can enjoy a day where you don't break a pound and a half and, and just catch fish all day. Uh, but I think, for for me anyway, I want to know that that there's a big fish swimming in that lake. I had never seen so many big stillwater rainbows in a week on Facebook that I did when that thing launched. It was awesome. Hello? Hey, Jordan. It It's Mark. Hey. Is Mark Hopley. Hey, Mark, how are you doing? I'm good, man. How are you? Oh, not too bad. Good. Hey, um, I appreciate you taking the time, man. It's uh, it's awesome. I'm not taking you off the water, am I? No, man. There's no water to be on. It's still frozen. <laughs> okay, hold on. <laughs> I'm just playing with some levels. I want to make sure. You... Yeah, I know. We're fighting that struggle down. Well, I'm down in Penticton. We're got a buddy of mine in uh, Creston who ties. I'm not a good mouse pattern guy, but uh, he ties mice patterns, and they're they're amazing. And uh, I have my cat chase them around the house. And uh, I'll tell you what, these brookies, they, they're, they're crazy for them. They come right up and nail them off the surface. As fast as you can strip that thing, they're after it. Eh? Good evening, Rose Lake. John here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This, this time of year, that, that's a pretty uh, common practice. And uh, obviously, I'm just guessing, but uh, just from past experience, those, those big fish, they, they stay in the deep water and they're eating... Uh, bloodworms during the pre-emergence and then once the hatch get intensified a bit they they move into the shallower water these three calculators when you're hitting these wild fish over 18 inches and 20 inches on a three-way 
it's a battle. These things are going crazy, and we're we're fishing size ten midges. I've been I've been in the game for a long time. It's great to see fly fishing growing, but I was doing this before a river runs through. It was filmed. You know what I mean? I think it ruined fly fishing. Everybody's intimidated because they think they need to do this gnarly shadow cast or whatever he's got going on. You know, they think it has to be this holy sacred thing, and and I'm saying, they're intimidated by it because they captured the beauty and the essence. But I just can't. I can't. I can't. That's like one of the things I tell people right away. Like, forget about everything you saw on a river runs through it, and let's just get this fly into the zone and focus on these fish. No one's going to be videotaping your back cast or looking at your loop here. You know? Hey, guess what? My buddy always tells me, sloppy cast catch fish, too, and that's true. I never had a trout come out of the net and tell me my cast was terrible. Well, it was tough because breaking into the fly reel market is tough enough as it is, but then... Uh, here I am with this new brand, this new company competing against brands that are worldwide, uh, some that have been around for, you know, almost a hundred years. And it's pretty hard to trust a new company like that. But once word got around that, well, this new company actually has some fantastic stuff and it's really good quality and the price isn't outrageous at all. Uh, word got around really quickly and soon fly shops were phoning me. One of my favorite stories to tell anyone who actually wants to listen is um, I was on uh, Langford Lake, uh, just outside of Victoria, uh, in my belly boat. And we had done okay that day. I'd caught a few fish. I was on my way back into shore then and caught another fish, brought it up into the stripping basket. Luckily, I had just taken the hook out of the mouth. When I hear kind of this wump-type sound behind me, I turn around and a giant pair of eagle talons went by my head grabbed the fish from my lap. Uh, the wings cuffed me in the back of the head and took my rod out of the holder into the water. And it took, <laughs> off, it took off with the fish. And I'm sitting there for about 30 seconds frozen going, what, what just happened? And I, I kind of look around with my arms out going, did anybody see that? And of course, nobody's on the list. Hi, I'm Steve, and I have a problem with buying rods. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, right now, I, you know, I'm liking a 10 foot five weight for, for throwing chronomids and I actually have a nine and a half foot six weight that, uh, is really a nice line to throw a, like an intermediate or a, or a, a high D. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, that's what happens. I just, you know, well, something like that does happen. I just go down into the vault there and find another fly rod that's tucked into a, uh, into a rod tube somewhere that's still got the plastic on it because I've forgotten that I bought it two years before. I guess R- Ricky I, Bobby. One thing that I do find a little <laughs> frustrating is your Talladega Nights references on the water. <laughs> I'm going to come at you like a spider monkey, old man. Uh, there's a couple. I mean, the best one that happened to me was last year while, while filming for uh, an episode of Sport Fishing on the Fly. The day before the crew, the TV crew got there, I, I lost, you know, it was one of those fish that got away stories, but... Um, I, caught, I had a bull trout strike. I didn't see him right away, but he hit really close to shore, and I saw the flash, and I just yelled up to my buddy up the shore, and I was like, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. And I was having fun, and all of a sudden it woke up, and it tore across the river. And sometimes with, you know, especially with, uh, you know, barbless hook streamers, they'll, they'll barrel roll, and they'll slip off the hook, and occasionally, pretty rarely, but occasionally they may foul hook themselves on their, you know, their tail or some other part of the body, and all of a sudden you can't slow them down, and it feels like you got a 40-pounder on the line. This thing that woke up and ripped across the river to the point I started to worry about possibly having a foul hooked, and 
and um, I've big reel with its dial system on uh, on zero to ten kind of drag settings and I normally fish bulls at about three three and a half on big ones and I was up to seven and a half and couldn't slow them down after palming crap out of it I'm going to solve the puzzle you know, oh I like uh, that I like I like the way you put that yeah that's I mean but that's that's what I'm doing you know some guys like to play chess and figure that puzzle out I go fishing and try to figure that one out it's you know mm. to each their own but um, but every day I go fishing it's a challenge and and uh, it keeps me on my toes, and it keeps me thinking. And those those waters they have there are so heavily, I mean, they're hit hard. Let's put it that way. We yep. have we have all these lakes, and the fish maybe don't see as many patterns. But I, m- my personal theory, and tell you chime in on this, but I think that if you take a body of water that gets hit and hit and hit and hit, and people develop patterns that work, those patterns are going to slay them over here. They are. Yeah. hundred percent. I mean, and that's, you know, that's part of it is, is it's one thing to try and feed a trout, uh, and by using leeches and damsels and caddis and crawnies, I mean, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to put that in front of them and hope they want to eat it. You know, the big thing about the attractor style patterns, uh, with boobies and blobs is they're not trying to eat it. You're pissing them off. Mm. And that's a natural instinct that they have. So you're essentially, you're preying on their natural instinct of being a predator. As you're going to probably find out, I'm, um, do I sound echoey in this room? A little bit, but not, it's not terrible. Okay. I might be able to, I might be able to go somewhere else where I sound a little less echoey. Um, I'm just, I'm actually having problems with my mic for some reason. One second here. Okay. Yeah. Is this a little bit better? Yeah, that sounds good, man. Like I said, I was given an absolute education at Tarpenville because what I got to do was make a lot of mistakes. Right. Um, you know, because we were we were jumping tarpon every day, and um, I think I was down there for about five and a half weeks, and um, was just determined to kind of learn as much as I could and really try to put the pieces together, you know, whether it was tying EP fiber flies for the first time or, you know, learning how to double haul. I mean, when I showed up there, I mean, I was a trout guy. I had never double hauled before. I didn't need to. I could cast across most rivers that I fished. Um, (laughs) So it, I mean, it was just a, a totally different set of skills it's just a learning curve for me because i'm always trying to find the value you know what i mean not necessarily the yeah. most expensive not the cheapest but give me something that's gonna be a pleasure give me something experience. give me something that's gonna give me a nice bang for my buck exactly yeah that sounds like that's your mantra yeah i mean you know I, that that is i mean that's that's what i've been trying to get across to people and and i, and I tell them look at i love those those really expensive glasses too but you know i don't care who you are it's going to sting you when, when you scratch them and break them. It's just, it's cold life. You're right. And you know what? It's, um, I, I had a conversation with a fly fishing guide last week about this. Sometimes you just got to say yes and put your head down and just do it. Just do it, man. And you know, the other thing too, I learned if it's uncomfortable, you're probably doing the right thing. You mean by just get outside your comfort zone? Just get outside yourself. Exactly. I mean, if it's uncomfortable, cause I've been in sales my whole life. You know, I get, every time I go to a show, I get these butterflies mm. and, uh, you know, and, you know, and picking that first guy 
you know, saying, you know, hey, you want to see something pretty cool? That first guy, when the show opens, is the hardest guy you're going to pitch all day. But it's the most important one because that's what gets your motor going. I like to know kind of like how you got into guiding, kind of where your passion comes from, kind of kind of relive the past, kind of how you got to where you're at. And, uh, okay. Yeah, like, for me, I, I like to go pretty deep on this on this show. The whole idea is to kind of get behind the stories, you know what I mean? Like fly fishing, mm-hmm. there's... We all, as anglers, we've all got stories, and I find uh, guides usually have some pretty interesting ones. So, oh yeah, <laughs> you know, um, I got a few. Yeah, I bet you do. So, hey, um, uh, the other thing, like uh, I might ask you, uh, do you tie yourself? Yeah, I do fly tying. Awesome. Yeah, because I'm all over that, and I could talk that all day. Um, sorry, I gotta shut that off. I got things making noise here. And uh, if my dog starts barking, I might have to take a. We might have to stop and edit, but you never know. He's a crazy one. Yeah. Uh, all good. Okay, man. Okay, but then uh, what else was I going to ask you? Just basically about you know like one one question I like to ask my guests is is kind of if you could change one thing about about fly fishing in general, what would it be? Or I know that's kind of a vague question, but I, I get some pretty interesting answers on that one. We're talking today with John Peoples of AVA, uh, Arkansas Valley Adventures out of Colorado. And John, I'm curious, uh, one thing I always like to ask my guests on the program is if, if you could change one thing about fly fishing, what would it be? Man, that's a tough question. If I could change one thing, I'd probably be getting more people into it. Um, it's just one of those sports where when you are there and you know what you're doing, it's a it's a challenge like no one else's business. You got to figure out what flies are hatching, what bugs, what insects are moving around in the water. You got to figure out what fish are in that area and what type of fish are eating. Because there's been times where I'll throw on like a purple bug or like a purple midge, and I'll only catch brown. And then I throw on a different color, and I'm only catching rainbows. Um, it's just something like tranquility about it. It's just you, Mother Nature. You're on the river. Nothing else matters, and you just enter into a zone. We're doing a film that kind of uh, talks about and uh, delves into what we've talked about of, you know, bridging or bringing fly fishing kind of out of the country club attitude and more into the light of, you know, action sports and the outdoor world and kind of taking our sport of fly fishing and shedding some light on it as if it were, you know, it belongs more in the outdoor world or the action sports world, same, you know, mountain biking or rock it's a, it's a logical extension of all those, all those activities. And, and that's what the film is about. And then the final night of the film, um, we've done over, uh, over the summer, we've done what we've called Mondo campouts, simple as that. And it's an open invitation to anybody who wants to come and we're going to have a big bonfire. And then the next day we're all going to go fishing together. Yeah. I always think it's nice to have those home waters, but I mean, I'm not, I'm not somebody that travels obviously as much as you do. It sounds like you do it all the time, which is pretty cool because you're always seeing new water and I'm sure you, you probably learn a lot, uh, hitting these uh, new places. Yeah. It's, every, like I said, every, every person I, I go and I fish with, um, it doesn't matter what the fishery is. If we're, I mean, I fish with a guy in, uh, in, Thailand for these tiny little um, Asian masier, and they literally look like ten-inch carp, and and I just remember how stealthy that guy, how how stealthy we needed to be to catch those fish, and 
you know, stand. I mean, we were standing like six feet off the bank of the water trying to make our cast into these pools. And, and you take the methods that you learn there and you bring them back to a trout stream in New Jersey. And it's really cool. Just picking up little tactics everywhere we go and, and overall will make you a better angler. Tell me a little bit about how, how fly Lords all started. Well, it started in my college dorm room in Swanee, Tennessee, uh, about six years ago. So it was freshman year of college. Um, and it just started as a passion for fly fishing and a passion for fly fishing content. And it started right when Instagram was getting big and we became the first platform, uh, to share solely fly fishing stories, uh, kind of like a publication in the Instagram and social media space. When I was in grade nine, and I finished my high school in Campbell River, where I discovered salmon fishing. And I missed quite a bit of school in grade 10 and 11 and 12 due to uh, salmon runs. So (laughs) (laughs) I enjoyed the, the years that I spent in Campbell River immensely. It doesn't get much better than that, especially uh, this time of year when the, the trout are uh, strapping on the feed bags heading into winter. Uh, they, they'll search out those big items. Yeah, they're looking for big meals. Um, you know, they're, they're counting their calories, that's for sure. And uh, it's a good time of year to get out. I always like the fall. The water's cooled off. The fish are well fed. And now with the colder water holding more oxygen, they're full of vinegar. Ended up deciding to go on a little bit of a journey. And uh, so I went down to Patagonia. I was in Argentina for about a month in Buenos Aires. I was studying Spanish uh, for about 20 hours a week. I didn't uh, know any Spanish. So I wanted to try to brush up on that before I was going to go out to Patagonia for a number of months. Uh, So after about a month of studying Spanish and hanging around Buenos Aires, I took a 27-hour bus ride to uh, Bariloche. Yes, I would describe being in... Uh, that kind of Patagonia region. I wouldn't describe Mendoza as Patagonia, but yeah, definitely all that that region is being like 100 or 150 years ago, you know, across the Western U.S. The roads, unbelievably bad roads. Um, so yeah, actually one of the actually one of the worst parts of the road was actually that drive from Mendoza south down to uh, San Martín de los Andes. Uh, there was you know down Route of 40. The first part of the day, we were driving down this road, and it was a brand new, beautiful paved road. And we're coming down this road, and there's you know, no cars on this in this road in the middle of nowhere. And we actually, you know, came upon the sign, and, and we didn't have the best Spanish, but it said the road was closed. And we're like, the road can't be closed. Uh, that doesn't make any sense. This road's way too nice. And so it was like, road's closed, 25 miles ahead. And we're like, well, we could and we could tell people have been kind of going around the sign, so we weren't sure whether the sign was just kind of not accurate or what. So we ended up saying, well, let's go for it. So we went for it and we sure enough to go 25 miles down this beautiful, beautiful road. And then it just dead ends in the middle of nowhere. And so we had to go all the way back. And of course, one of the things when you're driving in these remote places is gas. And you're hoping you have enough gas to make from town to town. You really have to fill up with gas in every town that you're in. Uh, so we were like, wow, we're going to kind of be stretching our gas here. We just wasted, you know, 50 miles worth of gas. Um, so we had to go all the way back. And then there was a little side turn off onto a tiny little gravel road. I'm like, oh, I guess this is the way. So we went down this, you know, washboard gravel road for hours. And that's kind of the story of Patagonia is just washboard roads for hours and days on end. 
But actually, later on that day, we got to, we kept seeing all these cars that were covered in mud. And we're like, why are these cars so muddy? And uh, we got down to a section of road that had completely washed out in a flash flood. And it was kind of funny because you pull up and there's a big bulldozer there. It's ready to fix the road. But the guy was in the cab of his truck taking a siesta. And meanwhile, there was about 20 cars waiting to go around this mud puddle. Um, but we had seen these smaller cars and guys on motorcycles that had gone through this mud puddle. So we kind of was like, well, we can go, let's go for it. Uh, I think we can get through. And, uh, so we powered through this mud puddle that was, you know, a couple hundred yards long and you couldn't tell how deep it was. And so we just went for it. <laughs> uh, thankfully, thankfully it all worked out. We're chatting today um, with evil Belenov of smartangling.com. Evil, if, if you were, geez, I just lost my train of thought. I'll edit that out. <clears throat> I was just curious about. What the heck was I going to ask you? Son of a gun. <laughs> I had it. I, lo- I lost it. Damn it. Um, oh, yeah. You know, what, you know what I was going to ask you is like a typical year, like a typical year for you. How does mm-hmm. your year lay out? Um, are you picking these tournaments way in advance? Like you already know what you're doing next year type thing? Um, it. It depends on the tournament. Um, I mean, things like the World Championship, Commonwealth Championships, we would, um, the national, the Canadian national teams would be selected at least a year in advance. Um, sometimes more than that. Um, because if you want to be, and if you're going to be serious about one of these, you know, it does take a year of preparation. Being that you've been around this world of competitive fly fishing, Commonwealth Championships, World Fly Fishing Championships, there must have been a lot of different people that you've learned from. Who's the biggest influence that you've uh, had in your fly fishing? Yeah, I mean, I, I mentioned uh, three names uh, for lakes um, years ago. I mean, probably uh, 10 years ago, um, somebody broke to Canada for some classes, a, um, a guy from the UK named John Horsey. And John is one of the very, very best lake fishermen in the world, hands down. Um, and, you know, having the opportunity, I took one of those classes. It was sort of a two-day thing going over different techniques in the so-called lock style, which is fishing from a drifting boat. That's mm-hmm. what we're doing in uh, competitions. Um, a lot of what I build on, the fundamentals are, are still from those two days, you know, so many years after that, of course, you know, I've learned different things, I've made mistakes, or relearned things, looked at different, um, you know, styles and so on, but when I look back, the, the fundamentals of what I learned are still what, um, you know, I learned from John Horsey back then, so it, it, it certainly left a mark on my session. Check, one, two, one, two for calling Stroudwater Research Center in Avondale, Pennsylvania. One moment, please. <clears throat> Stroud Center, this is Scott. Hey, Scott, it's Mark from Flyfish 97. Hey, Mark. How are you? I'm doing great. Sure, sure. So I'll start with our research program. Uh, we've, again, been doing research here in Pennsylvania and around the world since 1967. And so uh, over the our history, we've assembled a really top-notch, uh, world-class scientific team. And so we have a number of different PhD-level scientists who are leading different efforts uh, on freshwater research, uh, both here in Pennsylvania, in our northeast region, and around the world. So I'll tell you a little summary of that, those research programs. 
So probably of most interest to the listeners of the podcast, we have an entomology group uh, that is doing both basic and applied research to understand aquatic invertebrate communities, uh, how they function, what makes them healthy, and what impairments degrade habitat for freshwater invertebrates. So that's kind of our our longest-running program here at Stroud. Hello? You there? Hey, Colton. It's Mark. How are you? I'm good, man. How are you? Pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah? You going fishing today? Oh, I'm going fishing later today. <laughs> Let it warm up a little bit, see if I can chase some bass or pass around. Ooh, that, you know, I, I started kind of young in the industry, which was good for me. I started working for a fly shop out of Boise, Idaho, um, Boise Anglers, and commercially tied flies for them at the age of 14 until I graduated high school. And, um, so I kind of, when I was probably supposed to be doing more homework and stuff like that, like my parents wanted me to, I uh, kind of was applying to fly shops and that over there on the Henry's Fork and happened to get a job with Henry's Fork Anglers and was pretty lucky for that. So yeah, I got, I got lucky. <laughs> I mean, I still, you know, I still know people that don't really know what they want to do, but um, I, I, I feel like I got lucky enough to know what I wanted to do and, it's been a good ride for me. I love it. Started tying at 10. So I got my first fly rod when I was eight and started tying, you know, nearly after that. Um, definitely kind of your millennial type thing. You know, I taught everything I know about like casting and tying is all off YouTube. So I'm going to ask you kind of an odd question, but can you kind of describe in your mind a perfect day guiding for you on the snake or Teton, wherever you're fishing? How does it look? Perfect day. Oh, I mean, perfect day guide. And I mean, I meet my clients at 8, 8, 15. Um, we already have, you know, a section of the, the fork picked out or Teton. just depends on the time of year. And my perfect day is you get on the water. You know, you have some decent uh, anglers with you that are going to have a good time either which way. But you have a chance that at least one or two fish on the dry. And then my favorite thing to do is sight nymphing. Guiding sight nymphing is about the best thing in the world for me so if we get you know a couple decent sized fish i'm not i'm not too worried about the numbers for me so and i think most of my clients know that um i kind of like to find those bigger fish that fill the net and being able to sight nymph some of those fish on undercut bank or that are just sitting under a branch and you're coming up behind them that's that's my perfect day right there just sight nymphing and maybe a couple on the dry obviously if you can but that's not always the case sight nymphing seems to take the big ones home most of the time. So, um, absolutely love that. And I think if I was going to pick anything to fish every day and guide every day with and be sight income and get off the river, you know, whenever the sun goes down or the clients are done and then pretty happy day right there. So then, uh, by lifting up the rod, they pulled their fly instantly, you know, anywhere from nine to 12 feet away from the fish in a split second. So that fish is gone. He's not, you're not going to get a second chance at him, but in this case, just ignoring that, what will happen is eventually that fish will go behind it and maybe try to suck, suck a few times. And when he realizes that he can't do it, he'll accelerate and swim onto it and then bite it. Uh, that was what, what the, our coach was trying to teach us in Scotland was the fact that if you ignore those little bumps, 
eventually the fish is going to get in its mouth. But one of the common mistakes uh, that people do is they just sort of write it off as a, the tail is too long on the pattern. They'll cut the tail shorter thinking they're going to hook up. But in reality, what happens a lot of times is by changing or altering the pattern, maybe that long tail is part of the, the attraction to the fish, why it came in. It actually took your, your fly in the first place, but now you've altered it. And even beyond not catching more fish, you might get less strikes because they're not as attractive to the movement of it in the water. So ideally, if you're noticing something like that that's going on where you're getting those bumps and you think that it, your tail is too long, you're better off to either slow down your retrieve ignore it or else alter your retrieve. Uh, one thing that I compare it to is if you've ever fished in a boat with two rods, which you're allowed to do in British Columbia and I'm sure everywhere else in, in Canada, but uh, quite often someone will be on a motor and they'll have a rod in their hand and they'll have the other rod in a rod holder. You ask people and I'll ask it at my clinics and typically 90% of them will say the same thing. I'll ask which rod catches more fish. They'll say the one in the rod holder. The reason why <laughs> is the fish that have been sucking and bumping it get a chance to bite it before you can put your other rod down, reach over and grab it. So that maybe three or four seconds it takes you to put your rod in your hand down and grab the other one and pull it out of the holder, the fish is finally locked into it. So it's a good example showing that's yeah. an example of what happens. If you ignore and you give it that extra three or four seconds, eventually they'll accelerate on it and they'll lock onto it. That's that's so true. And you know what? That's I've never heard it put that way. Because the second you put your rod down to grab a sandwich or or whatever, that's when your rod goes off, isn't it? And you're right. <laughs> exactly. Huh. Yeah, so it really depends on a lot of things. In in regions where there's high effort, like the Kamloops region, we don't see a lot of fish past age of three or four. Um, and that's about that's typically about as old as the, the fish will get in a small lake if it's a reproductive animal. Um, but in some of the lakes in the caribou, for example, where fishing effort is much lower, some of our sterile fish, you know, they'll see fish that are seven or eight years old, uh, rainbow trout. Wow. I would imagine that's also when you're starting to talk about some, some bigger fish. No, absolutely. And it's also very strain dependent. Like, um, one of the, one of the downsides of our blackwater strain is that they tend to show relatively early maturation. And so the fish are dropping out of the fishery anywhere from two to three years of age. Where some of the other stocks, um, they can have a, a later maturity, you know, anywhere from four to six years of age, which, which certainly has its advantages. Yeah, I think in the li- literature I've read and, and the studies that my staff have, have completed on catch-release angling in lakes in particular, um, the driving factor for mortality really is temperature. So when water temperature, you know, in lakes we find over about 13 degrees, you start to see increased mortality. And that's not to say that all the fish are dying, but it's kind of the... Um, kind of the tipping point where you see uh, fewer fish survive. I think mortality is a bit higher in some of the small lakes uh, with catch and release fishing than it is in rivers where you know, the water's cold, it's highly oxygenated. So I think, in a, for example, some of the sealed fisheries, they see extremely low catch and release mortality. But um, we do see um, in lake fisheries that um, mortality can be higher and due to temperature. Yeah, certainly bleeding when a fish is hooked is, is not good for a fish, but you know, I think if you take good practice, like if the fish swallow a hook, for example, not to try and get it out, just try to cut it off as close as you can to the to the hook and minimize your handling. Those are kind of the, the best things you can do to, to release fish uh, appropriately. 
Thanks for listening to the best of the Fly Fishing 97 podcast, season one. Um, if you know somebody that would uh, like to come on the program, please don't hesitate to reach out. Uh, details at the end of the show. Look forward to more guests in the future. And most importantly, thanks so much for tuning in. Your feedback matters. Let us know if there's a person or a topic you would like to hear on the show. Email us at mark at flyfishing97.com. Until next time, tight lines and we'll see you on the water.